Welcome to Think Queerly, a thought leadership podcast that cultivates inclusion, understanding, and social evolution for a more accepting, equitable, and humane world. I'm your host, Darren Steele. I'm a personal leadership coach who empowers LGBTQ plus creators and change makers with their self-mastery so they can accomplish their goals, create a life they love, and make a difference in the process. I want to share my coming out story with you today. Um, Over 240 episodes over the last four years, I may have spoken a bit about aspects of my coming out earlier on, but I don't think I've ever gone into this much detail. I recently published an article for another publication, Come Out As You Are, and I thought I would dive into this and share any other additional insights that came out just to give you a sense of who I am. I'm now 56 years old in 2022. What my experiences were growing up knowing that I was different, that I was other at a very early age. And so I'm calling this because it's true. I knew I was gay when I was five years old. For as long as I can remember, I've always known, but for the longest time, it was not a feeling that you would call pride. Until I was 19 years old, which was 1984, and for almost 15 years of my life up to that point, I felt a combination of fear, guilt, shame, unrequited sexual desire and emotional desire, silence, isolation, and otherness. An early memory, and I think it was about five years old, maybe six, I went to a neighborhood girl's house to play. And I don't remember whether she was from school or she was one of the kids in the neighborhood, but through my little boy's eyes, her house seemed like a mansion. We went into the basement, which was massive. It just seemed like there were hallways and closed doors going down a long, dimly lit hallway. I was kind of overwhelmed by the size. So I followed her into this playroom, her playroom, I guess, filled with all kinds of toys. And I remember specifically wanting to play with a dollhouse more than anything. Something about that moment, though, made me self-conscious and has ever since left a mark on my psyche, on my personal narrative, I suppose you could call it. Fast forward to grade two. My teacher's name was Miss Hickey, and I remember her name because she clearly cared about me. And I could see her compassion for me when she looked into my eyes. I was learning dyslexic at the time, and I had severe ADHD. I had trouble reading and writing. I would reverse uh, B's and D's and P's and Q's, and I couldn't stay on track to read a sentence in a linear fashion. My eyes would dart all over the page. 
But she spent time with me after class. She helped me to practice my alphabet on the chalkboard and slowly learned how to overcome my struggle to master writing the individual letters. I have, I have a picture in my mind also of taking home the homework, these, you know, kids' workbooks with a pencil and, and really big lines, like huge lines, and how poorly I was trying to write the letters. But what I most liked about grade two was Ted. He sat one or two rows in front of me, and often when I passed behind his desk, you know, those kids' desks at school, they were all like the desk was attached to the chair and there was a little rack underneath for your books or what have you. When I passed behind him, I would poke him. He was a little bit chubby. And I think all the boys, all the kids would do that just to poke him. But I wasn't poking him to make fun of him because I had a crush on him. His reaction to me and that of the other boys and girls also made me self-conscious at that time. And for so many years, I did not have a word for what it was I was feeling. But by grade seven, a couple of the tough kids, the so-called bullies, certainly did. Sitting at the back of a class, I think it was an English class, in a portable at my Catholic school, Metropolitan Andre in Mississauga, one of the bad boys, pulled out his penis to show the two girls sitting beside him. I think we were seated four in a row at a table. And I recall being to his left, and I couldn't help but notice all the pubic hair and this pride and comfort he had in whipping it out. I couldn't take my eyes off, even though I was trying to appear that I was staring ahead. He knew that I was looking, and he knew that I would look, and he didn't care, but he definitely used that against me. Now, when I started high school, I had hopes. I had hopes for a new kind of freedom, starting afresh. I was not an excellent student. I had a terrible time focusing and paying attention. I was still challenged by my ADHD, but it Certainly wasn't as bad as it was when I was a child at two and three years old. I was very self-conscious and insecure, and I don't remember making any friends in grade nine. I was the classic loner sitting at the very edge of the cafeteria table bench as far to one side of the cafeteria nearest an exit door as possible, eating my lunch head down and alone. And it was in grade 10 gym class that I saw Ted again. I wasn't expecting that. Inside the gym was a very small room behind double doors. And it was filled with universal exercise gym equipment. Now, remember, this would have been the very early 80s. And it was that um, chrome plating universal equipment with the really rickety looking plates and everything sort of squealed and clunked and clanged. This was old school bodybuilding. Ted, apparently, when I asked him, had worked out in the gym over the summer. You know, my little boy's brain was thinking, why didn't I know about this? 
And in my eyes, he was a muscled Adonis. I remember he was Polish. I can't remember exactly his last name, but there was something about that whole thing that just made my knees weak looking at him. And I would jerk off many a night thinking about him, not knowing exactly what I would be doing, but just thinking about him. When I was 16, I began to question my Catholic beliefs. We were brought up Catholic, pretty devout Catholics. Um, I had quite the dedication to the Catholic Church for some reason, starting as an altar boy and then being an usher and then also um, being a lector. A lectern? I was able to speak from the Old Testament during Mass. But what I was being taught in the church at the time did not encourage or cultivate my dignity as a human being. It certainly didn't make me feel worthy. I had finally learned the language. Privately, I called myself a bisexual, a very common protective mechanism to avoid accepting the truth of my oncoming faggotry. I was gay, as I would find out later. No questions asked. Full-on gay. I liked men. At the same time, I endured a very negative and triggering experience during confession with a priest. To my face, this was a small uh, room. It wasn't separated by... um, a veil or anything like that, which would be common in a church. This was at um, an event that I was a part of for a weekend. So we were sitting face to face, sitting in chairs. To my face, he criticized my cousin who had left the Dominican priesthood because he suffered a very severe nervous breakdown. He was told by his therapist that he needed to leave the priesthood or he might have a heart attack or a stroke or just die. To me, this was the highest form of hypocrisy coming from a so-called Christian and from a priest, someone to whom I went for solace, for solace and guidance, who spoke ill of someone he knew and someone I loved. His harsh words made me question in that moment the validity of the church's teaching, and it became quickly clear to me that I could no longer believe in God. I could not reconcile what happened, what was happening in the church, what was being taught in the church, with being able to accept my dignity as inherent. It was... Weeks, if not months after that, I left the Catholic Church and became agnostic. And I suppose I was sitting on the fence about everything. I was neither straight nor gay, calling myself bisexual, neither a believer or non-believer, calling myself agnostic. I would not claim to be an atheist today because many people look at that almost ideologically, but I do not believe in a God or a higher power at all. So if you wish to call that atheism, that's what I might be termed small a atheist in grade 12 ah grade 12 
For me, that would have been 1982-83, New Wave, the music that inspired me, that moved me, that I finally started to begin to understand who I was and what turned me on. I tried dating two different girls, though. One was at my high school, and she was part of that New Wave crowd. Tara was sweet on me, and I couldn't help but enjoy her affections. We slow danced at one of the school dances. Our bodies pressed close. I was getting hard, but I knew through my hardness that I could not date her anymore. It felt wrong, literally and figuratively. The other girl I met at a friend's house party. must have been out in Brampton or Bramley, a suburb outside of Mississauga. I was drunk. And she laid on top of me on the couch in the basement of this house party with others coupling up and playing the same game. She groped and rubbed against my raging heart on. I don't know how I didn't shoot a load in my pants. I was like 17, maybe 18 at the most. My hormones were driving my body, but my mind was considering doing what she was doing to me with one of the boys in the same room who I was watching being fondled by another girl, while this girl was on top of me fondling me. Anyway, that night of grinding did not go any further. A week later, I had dinner with her family. I was all pleasant. Everything seemed to be going well. But soon after that, I knew I had to end this sham before I did something I would regret. So... I broke up with her. I told her something nice to make her feel good about herself and not implicate me as a homosexual. I didn't lie to her about anything about her. My best friend Kevin told me that what he'd heard her say sometime after to some friends after I broke it off was that I was one of the nicest guys she had ever gone out with who didn't try to take advantage of her. Isn't that exactly how a thoughtful homosexual is supposed to treat women? Is certainly something I thought of long after that event. I finally came out to my closest friends in the summer after high school. This would have been the summer of 1984. All through grade 13, I was desperate to tell someone. I was desperate to be accepted. And everyone... Everyone was accepting. All of my friends supported me. But it was bittersweet because, like I said, nothing would have been better if I could have been out and accepted during high school. But it was one of those lifelong lessons that coming out is a process that, in a way, is never-ending. I don't know how many times I've had to come out in different ways or to different people since high school. From my grandmother dying of breast cancer, to my mentor and graduate advisor at university, or indirectly through my parents who had to come out as parents of a gay son to their family or their friends. And it's a strange thing to me that there's always a tiny part of me that lives in the closet. And all of me knows that I no longer need to be in the closet in any way. But I think this is a predicament any of us face who are identified as queer. For 15 of my formative years, you know, from my early age of five until about 20, 
I was programmed not to accept myself, that I was somehow unacceptably different. Not by my parents, thankfully, but by society at large, by everything I saw on television or read in the news. That is an indelible scar that can only be honored for what it is and diminished through the self-forgiveness of having never done anything wrong for being gay, for being queer, or for however you identify. Yeah, thankfully, the, the strong and proud queer in me very often stands up and roars, you know, fuck the closet. Be who you are without compromising how you feel and who you want to be. Anyone who dares to tell you otherwise can simply go fuck themselves. So as an epilogue, what does this queer origin story have to do with self-mastery? Well, frankly, my dear, practically everything. You see, self-examination and knowing the events, the people, the environments, and the conditions that shaped your past are useful information. This is what's called your personal narrative. And you can do with that narrative what you please. I'm not suggesting you fudge it or lie about it. But in my case, I was determined to live better and in the now instead of living in my past that I certainly was doing in my teenage years or early 20s, dealing with all of that gay shame. When I discovered personal development in my early 30s, it became the gift that freed me from many of the conditions and restrictions that I placed upon myself to feel safe in the world. Growing up knowing that you're different, but not having the words, not having the thought process, the framework, or the guidance that would show me how to be who I wanted to be set me apart from the norm. Because when you don't fit in, you have a lot of opportunities to observe. And from my perspective, I came to see the world queerly, differently, and from the margins. If I couldn't fit into the dominant hegemonic narrative of boy meets girl, then I had to develop coping coping mechanisms to at least accept who I was. But today, and for many years, it's not about the need to cope, feel safe, or trying to fit in. Instead, it is simply about accepting what was, and using all I know about my past in conjunction with the skills I've developed towards self-actualization and self-mastery. It's the contentment in the knowledge that I belong in humanity by my very nature. We are all of this earth, and anyone who disputes my human dignity doesn't understand themselves and doesn't understand the nature of nature. If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd love to hear from you and maybe a nugget from your own queer personal narrative or coming out story. What was the one thing 
you struggled with, that was the biggest challenge, the biggest hurdle, and when you overcame it, was the kernel of transformation that helped you let it go and move on. Until next time, if you can't think straight, think queerly. <laughs>